Welcome to The Term, a podcast with the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Natalie. It is a slow week again at the Supreme Court, so we're going to be having a special guest today to, to talk about some recent news in his career. That would be Tom Goldstein, who earlier this month announced his retirement from his boutique Supreme Court firm, Goldstein & Russell. Goldstein has become one of the most prominent Supreme Court litigators over the last two and a half decades, notching more than 40 appearances before the justices. He's also the founder and publisher of SCOTUS Blog, the popular news site on the Supreme Court for high court lawyers and junkies alike. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. So, Tom, you kind of caught the Supreme Court world, you know, the press and the lawyers, a little bit off guard earlier this month when you announced your retirement from your uh, firm. Uh, Now, according to Wikipedia, you're still in your early 50s, and I know a lot of Supreme Court lawyers tend to go on a lot longer than that. So what gives? Why are you suddenly now deciding to step away from the lectern, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, it was a surprise to folks, mostly because I thought nobody would care. So I didn't, you know, (laughs) I I didn't even prepare an announcement or something. I was just like, okay, I'm done. Um, but then people, uh, figured it out and, uh, were intrigued. Uh, a bunch of people thought I was dying, uh, which I'm <laughs> pleased to say that to my knowledge, I am not. Well, that's, a um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that is the good news in all this. You know, I, this is all I've ever done is Supreme court litigation. You know, that's a hyperbole, but it's kind of accurate. The first case I ever argued in court was in the Supreme court. I'd done it for 25 ish years. I figure, you know, I've got one other, you know, chapter, big chapter in me where I can go off and learn about something and do something. Um, And if I'm going to do that, uh, you know, leaving another 25 years uh, would be a sensible thing to do, assuming I can make it that far. The kinds of I, I love every case at the Supreme Court, not because the legal questions are necessarily super interesting, but the process is done at a high level. Uh, the lawyers on the other side are really talented. The demands and expectations of the justices are very high. So I've, I have really enjoyed it. On the other hand, <laughs> the, the clients that I care most about are the little guy. And uh, the little guy is going to have a tough row to hoe in the Supreme Court for the next quarter century. And I hate to suggest that I just you know engage in give upism. But I'm not, I just was not that excited about signing up for beating my head against a wall uh, a lot with, you know, the court's conservative supermajority on cases that I really, really care about. The outcome being, in a lot of cases, if not most cases, if not all cases, preordained. So I thought I'd, you know, leave that to to other folks. You're right that it is unusual uh, for people to quit this job if you will the you know the the folks who when i started you know a senior supreme court litigator would be seth waxman who's still you know a senior supreme court litigator Mm -hmm. and so too lots and lots of people almost nobody leaves because it's a very low-key very manageable job uh not super super demanding it is one that benefits from experience and wisdom so ostensibly you get better at it. But I just figured, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Let's go find something new and fun to do. Well, let me just 
follow up with that. I mean, it's something that I've noticed that a lot of litigants for the small guys, so to speak, um, have kind of embraced these, at least uh, nominally, the the so-called judicial ideologies of maybe this Supreme Court supermajority. But it sounds like you weren't really interested in trying to finagle textualist or originalist arguments into every brief representing the, the quote-unquote little guy in the hopes that maybe you could pick off one or two of the conservative justices. That didn't really appeal to you. Well, it's not that I have any objection to any piece of the toolkit, whether it's originalism or textualism or whatever else. It's that those tools in the hands of the people who are wielding them when you have these ambiguities and gaps in the law, you know, the, the question gets to the Supreme Court because it's the sub, generally speaking, it's the subject of reasonable disagreement uh, based on all the objective tools. And so, what the Supreme Court justices are doing overwhelmingly is exercising judgment. And judgment is going to be informed by ideology in terms of what you think the law requires, what the Constitution mandates, provides for, and doesn't. And so, you know, the uh, I respect those who have said, okay, uh, I think that I can make the originalist case for there not being an expansive Second Amendment right to guns, for example. The problem is that there's no, nobody really knows what was going on back then. And so if your priors are that there is a second amendment right to guns you're going to conclude that originalism produces that result and so to a majority of the supreme court is and and the the big difference came for me is like i almost in my entire period of practice the court has been conservative you know i have been trying to persuade sandra day o'connor and then anthony kennedy and then john roberts but the problem is that that's no longer good enough that was a successive series of harder things to do Kennedy was more conservative than O'Connor, John Roberts more conservative than Kennedy. But now winning John Roberts' vote just means you lose five to four. And getting John Roberts and also Neil Gorsuch or whoever it might be in any given case is, you know, in the big ticket items going to be functionally impossible, uh, overwhelmingly. And so I thought... You know, or at least let smarter people than me do it. So that's kind of why you're stepping away. But can we rewind a little bit and talk about how you got to the Supreme Court bar? Um, you know, there's kind of a typical path to becoming a Supreme Court litigator. Yours is a bit of a more unconventional path. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you made your way into this very competitive field? Well, it's because when I... I started, it wasn't a competitive field. And that was almost the point. Um, yeah, so I went to American University's law school. I didn't clerk at the Supreme Court. I didn't work in the Solicitor General's office. I started out with the idea that, look, uh, I have a vague sense of how cases get granted at the Supreme Court. And most Supreme Court cases are born, not bred. They are granted because they involve circuit complex, 80% of the docket. And, but there was this huge disconnect. The, there was a, this notion that the Supreme Court grants only 1% of all the petitions that are filed in front of it, which is, you know, mathematically true, but extremely misleading. Because 95% of petitions have 0% chance 
of being granted because they don't fit the formula that the justices have set for themselves for granting review. So what I said is, well, look, you know, I can read a court of appeals opinion. I can study and look at whether I think other courts of appeals would come out the opposite way on this particular legal question. And that's the kind of case I want to be taking to the Supreme Court. And so what I did is I built a model of doing a bunch of computer searches looking for those cases. And sometimes the cases would just reach out and slap you in the face. The uh, Court of Appeals would say, you know, this question is the subject of a four-way circuit conflict among every federal court of appeals, and we decide X, and we reject the view Y. But the thing about it was that there was both a lack of information out there in the bar about you know what kinds of cases the Supreme Court would take and whether it really was 1% or these other cases had a really, really great shot. And also, much more importantly, the Supreme Court bar, such as it was, I mean, it was basically John Roberts and a few other people, those folks had the sense that cases should come to them. Um, as John Roberts once put it in an article about me, would you rather, he thought, have your heart surgery done by the person who is the best heart surgeon in the world or the person who calls you up and says, I like heart surgery, I'll do it for free. And that's how he conceived of it. And that is not how I conceived of it because it turns out that getting a cert grant in the Supreme Court is neither heart nor brain surgery. Uh, so I would call the lawyers who had the case in the Court of Appeals and through various machinations and smoke and mirrors and the like in the beginning, uh, persuaded them to let me take on the cases. As I said, I you know I had literally no experience. I, I had not argued in any court. I had no. I had not clerked to the court. I'd, but nonetheless, uh, got uh, these opportunities. And in the first, I created my own law firm when I was a fourth year lawyer. And in that year, which was 1999, had. Uh, one out of every 10 Supreme Court's merits merits case, uh, and then always had it. And uh, then created these clinics at Stanford and Harvard to involve the students, because I was doing a whole bunch of work for free, which is a great business model in a sense, but not the relevant sense, which is you have to make some money to have a law practice. So we got the students uh, working on the cases, but it was basically that I was willing to go out and put myself out there and say, at the beginning, I would do the cases for free. The first eight cases I did, I did for $8,000 in total, but it was extremely controversial. You know, there was the John Roberts thing. There was another time when, in a, you know, uh, a big article was written about the emergence of the Supreme Court bar on the front page of one of the national newspapers and the reporter got one of the justices to say uh not attributing to their name but an unnamed supreme court justice that i was an ambulance chaser mm. and the world has changed radically since then you know people go after cases all the time if you have a case involving a circuit conflict you're going to hear from three former solicitors general offering to take your case to the court but the first person through the wall tends to get shot uh and that's kind of what happened with me well, I mean, within, I guess, not too many years, you obviously made enough of a name for yourself that you were, you know, basically uh, helping uh, David Boys and Lawrence Tribe and Bush v. Gore, and you obviously went on to have a very successful career. But, I, you know... I, I, in well, that it, one was it, a weird one, because that's at the beginning, not the not the middle. 
Yeah, that but is it happened was when I had started Boy Schiller and Flexner with David Boys, which sounds much more important than it is. I was the associate of the law firm mm-hmm. on the day that it started. So I knew David. And then when I left Boy Schiller, I was doing a bunch of work with Larry Tribe. Um, so I knew Larry. And what happened in the second presidential election case, Boys versus, uh, excuse me, Bush versus Gore, was, uh, and I'm the person who got the call and had to tell Larry that the vice president decided that he would not argue the case, but instead David Boys was. And I just knew both of them. So I was just the right guy at the right time in terms of being able to do that case. So I did second chair Bush versus Gore. And I'm, you know, we lost, obviously. We represented Gore, but I, I have always said I am not responsible for the loss. You can only hold me accountable for losing maybe one vote. I mean, that's a that's a really interesting point that it did happen uh, relatively early in your Supreme Court career. But I mean, did all those kind of uh, snide comments about ambulance chasing and heart surgery, did it ever kind of wear on you? Did the criticism ever kind of sting a little bit? Or was it just kind of, you know, par for the course? Yeah, I think I was... I don't know. You, you, you're young. You've decided that you're you have a good way of succeeding. I was getting a decent amount of attention. I was I was accomplishing what I set out to accomplish. And I think that if I had been better informed, if I had been in a law firm other than my own, uh, you know, people would have tapped me on the shoulders and said, you know, maybe just tap the brakes here for a second. Don't be as out there and as aggressive because I was extremely out there. Again, in the ways that I thought totally appropriate, you know, talk to the lawyers in the cases, that sort of thing. But I was I was not shy about what it is that I was doing. And I did kind of, I guess, come a little bit out of nowhere and had way more cases on the merits than anybody else at the time. Because this the the bar itself hadn't emerged yet. There was, you know, it was while now the overwhelming majority of cases are argued by folks who've argued multiple Supreme Court cases. That just was not true at the time. Most of the time, those people had their own cases. So I would say I was sufficiently ignorant and young that it didn't really drag me down. But, you know, it is when a, when a justice of the Supreme Court on the front page of the newspaper calls you an ambulance case, or, you know, it's, it's going to sting. And I had a bunch of interactions with the court like that. There are a variety of procedures and rules at the Supreme Court that are are designed in response to things that I did uh, because I would push every envelope. You know, I was because a lot of the things that the Supreme Court does are are done because that's how they used to be done. Uh, you know, it's a a place built on tradition, which is a, a lovely thing, but some of the traditions are stupid. And uh, I said about breaking a bunch of traditions and the court had to like try and keep up with me. Uh, and that that went all the way down to the blog. I mean, the, the court with SCOTUS blog has never formally recognized SCOTUS blog, but has a whole bunch of procedures that exist that are intended to allow SCOTUS blog to exist and cover the court, but they, they would never formally recognize it. Let's talk about SCOTUS blog because amid kind of all of your starting out um, in 2002, you founded it. What led you to that? Ignorance. The um, you know, so this is just the happy accidents of history. The you know, it was the very birth of blogging. Uh, so I had seen a blog, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. Why don't we try this out?" 
for the Supreme Court um, to because that you know we were practicing in front of the court and all of our attention was directed there and, and the first day that the blog was published, it got twenty hits, twenty twenty times it was viewed. I don't even think it was plenty of different people probably, and then I was too embarrassed to stop it because I was like, oh, that's going to look like failure. Um, and so it just grew at that point. The theory behind the blog was completely psychotically wrong, intuitive, but just utterly wrong. And that is that we would do the blog and we would talk about the firm's cases and it would draw attention to the firm. And it turned out that, you know, if you have a major, major Supreme court case, you know, you're the general counsel of general motors and you are thinking, who am I going to hire to do my Supreme court case? You don't turn to somebody and say, find me the guy with a blog. It turns out that that's not actually how you make those decisions. In addition, when the blog was writing about the firm's own cases and the firm's own petitions, I think it left the felt sense that, you know, maybe this place isn't, this thing isn't as credible because it's kind of an advertisement. It was intended as an advertisement and it looked like an advertisement for the firm. And so a few years in, I decided, look, we're just doing this wrong. We have to do not kind of what we were doing. We have to do the opposite of what we were doing. And so I hired a Supreme Court reporter, a very experienced guy named Lyle Denniston, uh, to cover the court. And I set up a bunch of procedures and Chinese walls that forbade anybody working for me from writing anything about any of the firm's cases, sur petitions, merits cases, or anything. And so what it did is it just turned on a dime and said, no, 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 no. This is no longer an advertisement for anything. This is going to be just a place where objectively you can learn about the court and, you know, that comprehensively covers all the, the cases of the court. And the blog has had different functions at different times. For a while, it was, you know, the court didn't have a website for a long time, and it didn't have an electronic docket for a super long time. And so I used to pay people to go and track down all the briefs, and we would recreate it an electronic docket for the Supreme Court. Uh, we were the archival source of materials about the Supreme Court. We are the electronic archival source still for those years. And our single biggest user was the Supreme Court because it was way easier for the clerks and justices to get the briefs from us than from themselves. So, and eventually the court did change that. It did obviously get an electronic docket. But the the blog ended up being, it uh, was a public service. And it also kind of shed a favorable side light on the law practice. Uh, because I was associated with it and people were nice about it. It has been an expensive light. You know, it costs me $400,000 a year or so that I sometimes feel like I'm lighting on fire. But it has, in the end, been a good thing. Uh, we're now adapting the blog to this new environment where I don't even have a law practice. Uh, but I don't know. I love the thing. You know, it's great to get to interact with people like you guys who are very interested in the court. Uh, it's a great platform for my wife, Amy, who you all know, who is the reporter for the blog now. Former guest uh, on the show. We got to yes, plug that episode. <laughs> yeah, friend of the show, friend of the show. And uh, loves to cover the big cases and does a great job at that. So it's, you know, uh, it, it is, it, I just was never able to figure out what the right exit strategy is. And here we are. 20 years later. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, uh, this, the the blog certainly seems to have come a long way since the twenty hits on day yeah. one. Um, I mean, you clearly tapped into an unserved market of court watchers, I guess, including the justices, hungry for information about uh, the court. So, I mean, what was the moment that you realized, like, okay, this really, this really has been a successful public service, as you say? Was there a big decision or a day where you felt like, okay, we've come quite a way since that first? day we went live yeah that's probably the day of the uh, decision in the first big healthcare case you know we live blog major decision days there were one million people uh simultaneously on the blog this would be the um, 2012 nfib sibelius upholding yeah. the aca well do you remember <laughs> um the and it was a crazy crazy day there were two principal challenges to the two principal grounds on which the statute was defended. The John Roberts loves to hide the ball in his opinion announcements. He wrote the majority opinion. The principal argument was that the statute, the Affordable Care Act, could be upheld as a regulation of interstate commerce, which is obviously right, and the Supreme Court rejected. And so the first page of the syllabus in the opinion says this cannot be upheld under the Commerce Clause. Which, you know, there were a bunch of reporters covering the court that day because it was a thing. It was a huge, huge, huge deal. It was the presidential election year. It was a signature achievement. There was a big controversy, a lot of doubt. And Fox and CNN reported that the statute had been struck down. And the blog reported that it had been upheld. And then the, those networks reversed themselves on the basis of what – and rejected their own reporters reporting on the basis of what the blog was saying. The president got the – wrong information about what had ha happened to the statute as a result of it and then on the basis of the blog the you know the white house counsel kathy remler went down and told him that no, no, no it's been upheld so it was utter lunacy i have um i have a long piece that's a TikTok of that morning uh that's the most interesting thing i've ever gotten to write um that got you know, we won the peabody award and a bunch of other big journalism awards for it. and i'd say that's the moment when we kind of felt like, okay, we don't own this space, nobody owns this space, but we're, you know, people will respect us for what we say in the space. So that space continues, SCOTUS Black, at least for the foreseeable future. Now you're stepping mm -hmm. away from the law firm and from your law firm practice, but my understanding was you're still going to litigate at least some existing cases. Can some you, things, yeah. Yeah, can you explain kind of like what your plan is there or are you going to take new cases? Yeah, I'm like a bad cold. You just can't quite get rid of me. You're just always hopeful that, oh, maybe this is the last day. And then you start coughing. You're like, oh, my God. Uh, so I have some legacy matters that I was working on. I uh, And some clients that I find really, really, really interesting and some projects that I find really, really interesting. And I'm going to keep working on those. So, for example, I represent Epic Games in these fights. Who, who makes Fortnite uh, in these fights with apple and google over app stores you know you can only use the apple app store on your iphone uh over that sort of stuff and uh um doing work for snap just on a variety of things companies that i think are just very very cool uh and i have a i have a wrongful murder conviction case that i care a lot about of uh, the ninth circuit 
So there's there's some stuff. It's nice being a lawyer. Like you just don't you you can retire from your law firm and still be a lawyer. It turns out, uh, and so far people are willing to give me malpractice insurance. Um, so yeah, those those kinds of things I'll do, and I'll so I'll do that kind of in association with the firm. It's weird. There's the law firm is now called Goldstein, Russell and Woofter. Uh, that's the like that's the continuation firm. But the technically the Goldstein and Russell firm. Uh, still exists, and so I, I am still a part of of that law firm. And uh, but I am trying not to do new things. I'm trying to focus on, you know, what kind of business stuff would be fun. Uh, what what can I do to use the skill set that I developed and the reputation that I've developed, but not be writing briefs. Um, for years, I've been trying not to argue in court. I've been trying to give, and it's almost. With, with the exception of just the big, big, big cases, I've successfully handed off all of the arguments in the firm because I've I've just kind of felt like, all right, I had my shot. It's my responsibility to you know make sure that the other people in the firm are getting to build their practices. Because again, when I started out, it was not that hard. You know, I was able to get arguments in the Supreme Court, but it's so competitive now that. If I were starting now, I would have no shot, and I, I wanted to make sure that my people really did. You know, you it, it is this irony that the only way you get to argue Supreme Court cases is by having argued Supreme Court cases, uh, and and everybody's got to start somewhere. You've talked about um, tapping into the entrepreneurial side of yourself um, in the next chapter. Uh, can you give us a little peek into what some of the things you might be thinking of for that? Well, if you were to think about things that combine what I know uh, and what I have maybe a skill set for, you could think about things like thinking about one really, well, step back one second. The law is a massive industry that is the least efficient, the least innovative, the least entrepreneurial of any full stop. And basically the reason is that those of us who are lawyers one day said, am I applying to business school or am I applying to law school? And all the people who like entrepreneurship, change, innovation-like answered that question, not all, but almost all, business school. And everybody else who liked things to stay exactly the same as they were and like to sit at their desk and just think about things, they said law school. And then it turns out that the people who run the business side of law are not business people, but lawyers. That's why law firms are these now multi-billion dollar businesses with many thousands of employees, and they're horrifically run. Lawyers are terrible at this, including me. But there, that means that there are incredible opportunities to bring efficiencies to the law. And so, like, one example would be lit finance. You know, there is this model now where people do pay psychotically high interest rates to be able to borrow money to finance litigation. But the lit finance companies and the lawyers are basically taking all the cases as given. A, a much better model would be to say, I'll finance this case, but I'm also going to involve this lawyer who will help you think about, about the case and make you much more likely to win it. 
uh, or to involve these lawyers who are much better at assessing the cases, that sort of thing. So one one space that I think about is lit finance, but I don't know. It's early, early, early days. It took me 25 years to figure out the law thing. 25 days I have not figured out the entrepreneurship thing. Well, we'll see if you'll have a uh, blog dedicated to whatever that uh, future yeah, venture will be. But uh, Tom, yeah. thanks so much for, for uh, talking with us today and uh, good luck with everything. I really appreciate it. It's very kind of you all to, to invite me on and I love the show. Well, Jimmy, that was a great conversation with Tom. I think that does it for us today, though. I think so. Thank you so much, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Additional reporting by Rachel Ripito. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. And oh, please leave us a review. 